Delane Brace reporting for duty, bringing physical and health education with a noble purpose. You're listening to Delane Brace radio show at DelaneBrace.com. We are Avengers of Health. It's December 3rd, 2020. Welcome, Braves. I'm Ron Jones, back with Michael Campy from the Lean Braves, and our topic today is, it's a little bit different type of show, From Bad to Worse, The History of Violence. And I thought there'd be no better person to discuss this with than Michael Campy. Welcome back. Uh, I'm not, I wouldn't go so far to say it'd be a fun show, but I, I, I suppose there is some dark humor here. Uh, it could can. be a fun show. Yes, and so my, you know, my reason for really doing the show and sharing some of these resources, Michael, as you know, and uh, is is to use history as a guidepost, to use it as a guiding light into the future. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw a lot of people this year, um, you know, protesting and rioting in America and saying what an awful place it is and how terrible it is to live here, and it it. It made me. It forced my play to get deeply into well, what 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 is bad? And you mm-hmm. you've used the quote, you know, things are going to get bad before they get worse. And then, as we found out, that was something that Churchill said verbatim. And then I was digging into the Civil War history of violence, and it was something that Lincoln basically said as well. So, what does that look like when things go from bad to worse. And we're going to take a very hard look at that today, but before we start any specifics, I would like to issue a disclaimer for those sensitive ears and people under age and anyone that doesn't want to get into uh, the hard facts of what civil war looks like and what real violence looks like um, and what real oppression can end up producing. If if, um, that bothers you and you don't want to hear that, this would be a good time to hit the eject button. That being said, we are going to get into the real stuff here. The real deal. And at some point during the show, either Ron or myself might take our clothes off, in which case you'll definitely want to close down. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, um, in Nazi Germany, that was, uh, you know, when they did mass executions of the Jewish people, they stripped the men naked before shooting them and shoving them into the ditch, or they fell into the ditch, and the women were um, allowed to be in their underwear. But I mean, you know, you think about stripping people down and then murdering them; it's pretty dehumanizing. I'm going to make a lot of references today um, to specific reading that I have done, and that I actually have these books in my collection. And I'm going to offer another disclaimer here. I'm going to give you some references, and this is on the the podcast page as well, so you can know exactly when they were published and who wrote them. Um, I have references specifically to Nazi Germany and their philosophy. That does not mean, please make a note of this, that I am a white supremacist. I study Nazi Germany because I don't want certain parts of history to repeat. And all of these books I'm referencing today were written by men that lived through this 
and wrote the books with the intention of preventing this from happening again. So don't take your 2020 superficial way of looking at things and get all butthurt that, you know, I'm offending you. You need to know why the books were written in the first place and be intelligent about it. The first book I'm going to uh, reference today is Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution of Poland. It was written by a very uh, respected historian named Christopher R. Browning. And I first heard about this book, Michael, in a I was watching an interview with Jordan Peterson, the professor from Canada, and he uh-huh. was talking about, you know, how how do you how do you go from being an, a regular everyday person to putting the bullet in the back of the head of a pregnant woman? And and he explained this very simply, one step at a time. And he referenced this book and this guy did an incredible amount of research in the the Nazi archives in Germany. He listened to the recordings and read the transcripts of many of the policemen on this force that had done the killings years later in the 1960s before they before they died. And to, to just give you kind of an—before I read some specific things from the book, um, the book basically lays out that these were just regular, everyday, working-class people in this police—like, you're your uh, everyday neighborhood policeman that is a good person. And they took that everyday policeman, and they made him and them into mass murders that were capable of putting the bullet in the back of the head of the pregnant lady. And it's a, it's a disturbing, dark story. But I, when you, you know, we talk about going from bad to worse, after I read this kind of stuff, I realized that things aren't so bad here. We need to reevaluate this. One of the things that uh, I'll, I'll read on page 35 is that, you know, when they, when they put the Jews in the trains, there's a citation here. Again, this is very well documented historically. Mm-hmm. They were in these trains 61 hours straight with no food and no water and no place to go to the bathroom and high heat conditions. So any any the quote here is the the ever greater panic spreading among the Jews due to the great heat, overloading of the train cars, and stink of dead bodies. When unloading the train cars, some two thousand Jews were found dead in the train, made the transport almost unworkable. So this is the kind of stuff that happens when bad goes to worse. And I know, Michael, you, you can interject at any time because you have done a lot of uh, scholarly work on violence and just, you know, been around different people in your life, and you have plenty to say in this. Well, that was my theme in college. Uh, when you were getting a bachelor's degree, you had to pick a theme, so mm-hmm. I picked violence. That's an interesting theme, yeah. <laughs> It'd be an interesting theme nowadays in 2020 with... Um, you know, yeah. I, I imagine you can only talk about violence if you had a certain position, uh, like maybe a left-wing position on violence. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a shot over the bow here too. Here, and and, and I'm gonna say this as a credential teacher, so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to education. We got this millennial generation, the younger people out, saying this is the you know burn it all down, ruin democracy. It needs to be torn apart. Mind you, this is the generation that's woefully ignorant when it comes to history. They haven't had a good quality education. 
I know, because I've had some of these high school kids in my class that can't even read their diploma, right? And they're graduating. And I saw this 20 years ago, true story, had some kids graduate, and they, they would not have been able to read their diploma through um, properly. This was 20 years ago. Now, you can imagine, you know, what's going on today. So, you know, they, they, haven't, they haven't been educated properly on, on what this country really is about. I would agree that we do need to take a more truthful and factual look at, at racism and the, the black experience and all that. And I've been doing a, a very deep dive in that, uh, as I've talked about publicly um, for months now this summer. And I'm, you know, I'm sharing more and more of that as well. So I'm not saying well, that there aren't things that need to be improved. Uh, Go ahead. In defense of young people, which I'm very fond of doing because they're hella smart. Um, the high school that was about two miles from the high school I went to uh-huh. had the highest illiteracy rate in the county. Mm-hmm. There was a huge percentage of people there who could who were not functionally literate. They couldn't read. Um, my school had the distinction of having the highest BD rate in the county. Hmm. But um, I don't, I have a bit of an issue with presenting a generation as being uh, um, blamed and or, uh, what would be a good word for it, I'm not sure. You're an English major. Yeah, Im- you know, Im- Im- implicated. <laughs> implicated, yeah. I mean, because, uh, you know, they were, uh, and this is off topic, obviously, since we're not talking about young people, but for a long time there was talk about how young people were so privileged and young people were this and young people were that, and they all got participant ribbons and everybody was special. Well, that was happening when I was in sixth grade. So um, there's not, I, the, the young people I know are just, Wicked smart <clears throat> and very aware of what's going on, I, and uh, they're you know they obviously have looked to the future with a little bit of desperation and anxiety mm-hmm. as because of what's happening. But I, well, I don't think you did. as they should this year. I yeah. I I we've talked about this before, and I. I'll respectfully disagree with you in in part on this. I mean, I, I'm that was a, a sweeping generalization on my part, and I recognize that, and I'll admit it. Part of it is my propaganda approach, <laughs> which I was I was well taught and groomed to use that. Um, mm-hmm. But I just I just in general, again, I don't really see that. I see a lot of dumbasses that didn't learn much in school that was worth a damn. Um, uh-huh. and, that, and that's just my position on it, but we we can disagree on that to a point. Um, but back to the subject at hand, um, one of the things that ordinary men brought out was specifics to ballistics. Now, think about this, and we're talking when things go from bad to worse, and maybe let's take a big step back. There are Jews that wrote after World War II that there was a Nazi in everybody, and that sounds really offensive, especially coming from a Jewish person. But their, their point to their point to that was that because man, quote-unquote, did an act so evil that we were all capable of doing it because we're all part of mankind. We're all humans. And once that, once that line has been crossed, there's a precedent that's been set, and that means it can happen again. 
And that's the mm-hmm. respect part of this. Like, we have to be really careful. I don't like to think of myself as capable of something like that because I've spent my whole professional career, you know, trying to help everybody of every race, creed, religion, or whatever. But the mm-hmm. people that live through it, some of them will say, think again. Everyone's capable of it. Um, and that is extremely disturbing. So when things can go from bad to worse, these are the types of things that can happen. Um, think about the logistics from a facility management standpoint, from a, from a materials management standpoint, from an efficiency standpoint. How would you kill thousands of people? I don't think people have really thought that through. We see oh a couple of people get shot or even in a mass shooting there's there's you know a dozen people or two dozen people um randomly in a crowd but we're talking about an assembly line killing squad there are certain issues that come up with that and what happened because the Nazis were killing so many people their system got overwhelmed on on more than one occasion they couldn't process everything quick enough. They had to get better and better and better at figuring it out. And this is one of the things this book brought out. Um, initially, he says that the bayonets were not fixed as an aiming guide, and there were a considerable amount of missed shots. Um, and this led to unnecessary wounding of the victims. And again, they were trying to be as efficient as possible. They want to use one bullet only to kill the person in the least amount of time. And so they they figured out that they needed to use the bayonet as a as a fixed sight guide. And mm-hmm. and then they were shooting people up close uh at point blank range and what happened was the the brain and the uh, skull fragments were splattering all over the shooters which caused extreme like psychological trauma even though the men you know, were doing their job, or maybe some of them even wanted to do it. I don't think all of, a lot of them wanted to do it. Another part of this is that you either joined the Nazis or you got sent to the camps or killed yourself. So, you know, that's a different part of the story. Um, but to summarize this, they figured out they had to, you know, they had to figure out exactly where to put the bullet. Is it going to go in the front part of the skull? Is it going to go in the back part of the skull? They figured out it's going to go in the back part of the skull at the top of the neck, and it couldn't be point blank because of the back blast. It had to be a certain amount of feet or distance away, and they used the bayonet as a sight guide, and then they, you know, and then it's okay, the body drops, and now what? Well, you don't want to be moving the body, so they figured out they'd dig a massive trench and march them right up to the edge of the trench, put them all up shoulder to shoulder, and then as they were shot, the the blast force pushed their head forward, and that tipped their body forward, and they literally fell automatically into the trenches. And then they would march to the next line up, and they would just continue. And what ended up happening is you had, you know, up to over, it's cited in the book, I did the the meter to you know feet conversion. It was over nine feet of bodies in these mass trenches, and even though they had perfected the shooting uh, mechanics, there were still people in the trenches that weren't dead yet, and they were just laying there having bodies piled up on top of them while they um, bled out and suffocated. And it was just 
awful. And again, I'm going to come back to this over and over. Why in the hell are we talking about this? Because we need, we want you to know what it's like when bad goes from worse. And we want you to know, before you open your mouth and start bitching about how awful America is, how bad it can get. And if you don't think it can happen here, think again. Because it damn well can happen. It's happened before, and it can happen again. There is some contention amongst people who look at things like this that it has already happened here, and it's only a matter of how much worse it's going to get and how quickly. It didn't happen. It didn't happen at this a, level. So we have a tendency to uh, ignore certain signs of collapse on that level. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, that people that have lived through it have written articles about how the collapse has already occurred in America. It's only a matter of when are the bodies going to start showing up on your doorstep. The collapse, you mean the, the, as, as far as the psychology or the, the lack of ethics collapse? Because I'm talking the about... The lack of ethics collapse. Okay, that, the, would, uh, that would produce the bodies on the doorstep. Yeah, civilizational collapse lasts a lot, you know, the... Um, I, the abandonment of the rules that govern what we consider a civilized society. I would not argue with that too deeply because um, I've been saying for years, based on what I know about history and culture, that we don't have the infrastructure to correct the problems. You know, mm-hmm. I was extremely critical of President Trump spouting off that make America great again when he never talked about physical education and physical fitness and, and never really talked much about health in general. It's impossible to be great unless you're physically fit as a society. It's never mm-hmm. happened, it's not going to happen, and it's not going to continue to happen here because we're not healthy enough to be great. That You need to get that front and center. <laughs> because... Right. The rest is a bunch of rhetorical bullshit. It's impossible to be great without the infrastructure, without the foundation, and historically it's very clear that the the physical fitness health part has to be, you know, ground zero. Of course, there's a lot of other things involved, but we're damn sure not going to get there without that. So um, back in the shooters, the shooters were gruesomely besmirched with blood, brains, and bone splatters. It hung on their clothing. You know, these are things I never really thought about. You know, mm-hmm. we, we know that they were cooked in the ovens, and we know that they were shot in mass graves, but we, I never really thought of the specifics of that and the, the problems associated with killing so many people in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really gruesome to think about, but it, it, the more I learn about this, the more I want to do what I can do to prevent this from happening. And maybe it's too late, Michael. But I, I don't want to just quit and not make an effort. Um, if I'm well, going to go down, I'm going to go down fighting. Yeah, that it's, um, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and most everybody will disagree with me on this, it is already too late. Mm-hmm. And uh, to counter that, there was a quote by Edward Abbey who said, the antidote to despair is action. Mm-hmm. Um. I am currently behaving as if there's a future um, while ex- uh, being fully capable of accepting the fact that there might not be one. 
Well, this this leads. Uh, one. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you first. This leads right into the next quote I had mm-hmm. laid out, and and maybe you can just loop back to this because I'm asking myself, and I've asked other people because I know about the 1918 influenza, and I know how long we were locked down. We were locked down three to six weeks in the average, and after three or four weeks, people were saying, enough of this, we're not going to do it, and they changed the public policies, because mm-hmm. they had some cities had had said, we're going to go in a lockdown again because of the second wave, and people are like, hell no, we're not doing it. And they backed off. And you mm-hmm. know what? They got through without crashing the whole economy, and the death mm-hmm. rates were far higher than anything COVID today. And that's a, the topic of another show, and we've done those shows. But why yeah. is it that we have become so complacent in 2020 to not push back, in my opinion, enough when the when the actual death rates just aren't adding up? This is the part that really disturbs me because I've uh, I've studied, you know, the the fascism, the totalitarianism, and all these things, and I'm like, man, we've lost so much freedom so fast. Mm-hmm. It's cited here that. Um, 350 to 400 soldiers deported 10,000 Jews in this particular uh, area where this killing took place. And I started asking myself, like, how does that happen? How how does a very small amount of people control a very large amount of people? This is another thing that comes out of this. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, like, in, in California with Governor Newsom, He's saying these draconian things that are apparently are getting the attention of the superior court and and defying what many people who are more knowledgeable about law than I am saying he's he's not even going by the Constitution. And yet everybody just follows it around and they, they bitch and they gripe about it, but very few people are doing anything physically about it in terms of, like, I'm going to keep my restaurant open— I mean, the restaurant people here in Los Angeles are livid. It's December 3rd, 2020, and they, you know, they're like, where's the evidence that, you know, eating out in a restaurant is a is a COVID infection uh, issue? And they can't get the science. There's like, and so there's a few people that are telling the rest of us what to do while they go out and, they, you know, this has come out in the media too. They're dining out and doing whatever they want to do. Um, anyway, I did want to, I did want to lay that out. Um, and so at the initiation of this um, situation in the book, he, he cites it, the overburdened killing machinery broke down. They basically overloaded the capacity to kill the amount of people that they needed to kill. Um, he goes on to say the victims were lined up facing a six-foot drop from a short distance behind. The policeman fired on order into the necks of the Jews. Uh, the process was efficient, and an assembly line is, is my uh, summary. And as as they were shot, they were basically looking down at the bodies of um, their own family members. Many times, it was just awful. Um, in, well, this, in this may, I mean, this, this might change the tone of what's going on here. Um, we're just uh, since we delve into freedom a bit. There is an article that I sent you. It's called "What Price Freedom." Uh huh. And the gentleman who wrote this article says, I have argued before that there is no such thing as an inalienable right. In a civilized society, rights and freedoms are granted to us in return for commensurate responsibilities and balanced against the rights and freedoms with which they may conflict. It's a bargain, and it's the price of living in a civilization. It kind of—now, correct me if I'm wrong, I—is this— 
it's like the the yin yang thing where you you in order to have good you have to have evil you, mm-hmm. you can't have one without the other that is the dance of life and so right. you you have well, it's kind of like it is certain um you know years ago there was a <laughs> um Fact, it was Jello Biafra, I think, that said that freedom implies responsibility, mm-hmm. and that's why it scares people. Yeah, that's why they're not ready for it because there's a certain level of responsibility that goes with living in a what we construe as a free society. Mm-hmm. Um, we think we have a free society. Well, okay, there's some responsibilities that go with that, and that is concern for the entire society, not just yourself. I mean, here there's. Um, I think I had mentioned this before. See if I can find it here real quick. Yeah. While you're looking for that, Hoffer wrote about this because he wrote about the alibi, and he wrote about how when when people have an alibi, they can they have a, a reason to fail. Well, it's everybody else's fault that I, you know, I don't have my education and blah 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 blah. And so this is one of the things that builds the the true believer in the mass movement. They're typically people mm-hmm. that have failed in life. And they're they're failures, and so they join the mass movement, and then they can point their finger at everybody else for for causing them to fail because there's a complete breakdown in the taking personal responsibility when you join that mass movement. It becomes about everybody. It's not my responsibility anymore, and it's very convenient mm-hmm. if you don't have your shit together, you know. Um, and, and this was part of this in this book here, because the people, the policemen that did all the killing, it's like, well, it wasn't our fault. We were just doing what we were told. That's what we had to do. And a lot of them mm-hmm. went to their grave thinking that way. Um, it was just, it was out of their responsibility. They were part of the mass movement, and that's just the way that it was. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to think differently, but... You know, we weren't there and we didn't live through it. So, but that coming from them, that that was the deal. Did you find your reference? Um, I did not. Okay, but there is. A, I, know, I mean, it's just the idea is that you know, there's a like we said, a certain level of responsibility that goes with existing in a what we term civilized society, and that everyone is required well, to, uh, by default. To kind of obey the rules. There are this. This came up in my philosophy club meeting. There are unwritten rules mm-hmm. in society. They're not in the law books. They're, these are typically things that you learn from your parents and your mentors when you grow up. And mm-hmm. what I've seen more in 2020 mm-hmm. is that there are a lot of people breaking the the unwritten rules. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's it might not be against the law. For me to go to a restaurant, and and we'll just say a a COVID outdoor dining area, Mm -hmm. and put on some extremely offensive rap music that talks about niggas, bitches, and hoes ad nauseum at a, at a a, a large amount of volume, right? Maybe that's not breaking the law, but it's an unwritten law that I shouldn't be doing that, right? And it... Right. It's just offensive to a lot of people. And mm-hmm. it can be a different kind of music, too. But that music, to me, is the most offensive. Because I just I grew up listening to Martin Luther King, and I just have an issue with that type of language wrapped around black people. Right? Mm-hmm. So I find it—I just find it very offensive, right? 
So, but there's there are a lot of rules like that that are unwritten, and it's like I I literally think a lot of the younger people again coming back to them, they haven't been taught these because their parents are checked out on social media or there's not a father in the home or whatever. And they don't know, like, the the theater is one of them. Like, you're mm-hmm. in a movie theater and a bunch of people are talking and they don't give a shit about anybody else. Well, there's an unwritten law, like, you go into movie theater with everybody watching a movie and, you know, at least in certain portions of the film, when it's quiet and reflective, you probably shouldn't be having a conversation. You know, because it's just rude and offensive. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's one of the reasons I've almost stopped going to the public movie houses because I just don't want to be around that kind of behavior anymore. I, I've heard a uh-huh. lot of other people talk about that too. So anyway, not to digress here. Now, one of the things that's coming up with um, the economy crashing and when bad goes to worse is that, you know, there are people, um, and, and again, after major pandemics, there are issues with famine and starvation and things like that. And you've got all these people out of work. And well, when you really establish a hardcore ghetto, there were major issues in World War II with the Jewish ghettos. Um, Dysentery and corpses strewn everywhere and just a terrible stench from rotting flesh. I mean, this is is what happens, right? And the 1918 flu, and I've cited this before uh, on different shows, that there, there were written records of bodies uh, staying in the house for a, over a week because there was no place to process the bodies. There were there were stacks mm-hmm. of bodies outside because there was nobody to come and pick up the bodies. They couldn't make coffins fast enough. So, um, so here's uh, here's the, the the quote I was looking for, and it's uh, the title of the article is uh, "Go for Zero. Mm-hmm. And there's a thing called the Australia. It's from Australia. It's called the Grattan Report, and like he says, the only viable alternative to the yo-yo strategy is a go-for-zero strategy, which has been successfully deployed in the so-called Tanzac countries, which is Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, and Atlantic and Northern Canada. These countries, democratic countries, have essentially eliminated COVID-19 from their borders. And the process went like this. You make zero cases, the explicit goal for the country or state and implement a specific public plan to achieve that goal. That plan will likely include a complete lockdown for all ages until the number of reported new cases has been reduced to approximately three per day per million people. Current level in the U.S. is 500 a day per million people. Once the three per day per million level has been achieved, certain specific low-risk High-benefit activities can be permitted and encouraged. An additional easing can be permitted once new cases to drop to one a day per million people. Everyone entering the country must be tested at the border or quarantined for 14 days. Stringent, properly staffed contact tracing and isolation must be in place for any cases that do arise. Non-cooperation and lying about exposure should be prosecutable. Lives depend on it. Testing must be easily and universally accessible for free, and the test results must be able to be produced and communicated within 24 hours. Testing with digital attendance, record-keeping, and follow-up must be instituted in all public venues. Australia's success means that up to 35,000 people can now attend stadium events with zero resulting cases. Masks are mandatory in all public places in areas which have recently reported cases in all other places they're optional. And economic supports for all those disadvantaged by the restrictions must be available. Strict enforcement of quarantine.
quarantine must be maintained, no exception. That's how you handle a pandemic. It's done in Australia. They have returned to pre-COVID normal. Well, cup- it's done in New Zealand. It's done in Taiwan. It's done in Canada. It's rampaging in the United States because of mindless automatons squealing about their freedom. Well, you know, I- if you do it right, you can shut things down. You can clean the thing up. You can get back to business. If you do it wrong. You go on and on and on and on and on and on yeah, and on. I, and that's what's happening here. Well, we did I, it wrong. I don't want to make this the flu show because we've already done no. that. But yeah, but, done but, 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 but a couple things. Um, the protocols and guidelines and recommendations were all there. <clears throat> I've reported on this ad nauseum all summer long. Mm-hmm. We didn't do it. And, nope. and now the, the proverbial cat's out of the bag and now we're screwed. Now, the other thing is, and we can disagree on this and probably will, this thing is way overblown. It doesn't, most people that get it, if they get it, they survive. And I just, I'm not buying the death rates that are being reported. And even those are low compared to 1918. So that's a completely different topic in some ways. Um, The fact remains is that we've shut down our country and we can argue about why and if, you know, but there's no way 2021 is going to be better. I'm no, just gonna, absolutely I'm not. just going to put that right out. It's not going to happen. And as Churchill said, things are going to get bad before they get worse. And I will agree with you wholeheartedly on that. And Without so, a, a thread uh, of uh, hesitation. So uh, back to bad to worse. Um, it's reported in the Ordinary Men on page one thirty four that they they wanted to reduce the Jewish population because they had a lot of dysentery and just you know there was a lot mm-hmm. of things going on, and so they uh, five to six hundred Jews were shot in December to reduce the ghetto population. They began shooting the remaining Jews for sport, and just randomly shooting people for the fun of it. Um, and then they they talked about. Um, in the undressing barracks, and then they were stuffed in the train car so tightly that the the doors would barely close. Now, I cited at the beginning of the show, they were in that damn train for 61 hours. Can you imagine being packed into a train in heat for 61 hours, literally with hardly any room to expand your lungs to breathe, with no food, no water, in the heat, no place to go to the bathroom? I mean... I just, it's hard for me to get my head around this, and I uh-huh. i want people to understand, before they throw America under the bus, that, uh-huh. you know, this is how bad it can be. You have no idea how bad it can be, most people, uh-huh. but I'm, I'm, I'm enlightening you here, if you want to listen. It's, it's not good. Um, the largest killing of uh, Operation the Jews in the entire war was called the Harvest Festival Massacre with a victim total of 42,000 in the Lublin district. And again, you know, you're going to take out 42,000 people, just the thought of getting your head around that uh, from a from an efficiency standpoint is is pretty brutal. Um, they, they gave him uh, quite a bit of alcohol because the guys were having a, a hell of a time afterwards, and so they really they really wanted them to just drown themselves out in booze and not think about it um, when they came back. Uh, let's see. Let's see. For a battalion of less than 500 men, the ultimate body count was at least 83,000 Jews. 
So yeah. less than 500 people killed 83,000 Jews. And again, this is the Ordinary Men book by Christopher Browning. Um, this book is actually, you know, a lot of what I read is is older, but this book is a newer. Well, let's, um, if you don't mind. 1992. Bring it. Um, since it is, it's, I mean, you're studying this stuff, and it's hard for you to get your mind around it. I imagine people who are listening will have a hard time getting their mind around it, too. And I had promised you some stories for this uh, yes. episode. So one of the stories was... Um, when I was taking a placement test for college. Uh-huh. And somebody in the class got really angry and jumped up out of their seat and stormed out of the room. Why? And he came back about two minutes later with a stick. And he was going right for the teacher. Really? Yep. And everybody in the room sat there and watched it. Wow. When I realized that nobody was going to get up, I got up and I stopped him. Mm-hmm. But that is how we respond to violence. And, you know, speaking to how ordinary people can allow this to happen, that's how they allow it to happen. They were watching the TV show. They weren't watching violence. Yeah, I think the term I learned in sociology is uh, diffusion of responsibility, if I remember correctly. It's uh, uh-huh. it's uh, another analogy be like you're driving down the road and there's a, there's a lady, you know, being attacked and, you know, raped or whatever— and you think, well, somebody else is going to call. Yeah. Or there's an accident. It's like, well, somebody else will call the ambulance, and you keep <clears throat> on driving. And we've all done that. Yeah. But I've also been one of the people to stop and deal with the accident or help somebody, too, because we like yeah. to think that someone else will do it. I don't but think we've reached the tipping point in America <clears throat> where we need to get involved. Right. We well, we to- don't have a—like well, we've discussed this before, we don't have a sense of— Community. There's no sense of shared responsibility. Right. And because that is not there, these things exist. So I was taking another class, and everybody was supposed to get up and do a little presentation on violence. And everybody else got up and did their cute little presentations and wore their little costumes, and then it was my group's turn. Mm-hmm. And we got up, and the first person did their thing, and I thought, this is stupid. So I went off book. I got up, it was my turn to do it, and I looked at the guy in the back row, and I said, what the fuck are you looking at, bitch? And everything stopped. Right. I said, yeah, you, back there in the blue jacket, what the fuck are you looking at? And I started walking back towards him, I grabbed him by the jacket and pulled him to his feet, and I said, who the fuck do you think you are? And everybody in the room was just absolutely mortified. Mm -hmm. I let him go, I dusted off his jacket, and I said, that's violence. Right. Violence isn't a cute little skit. Violence isn't something that you see on TV but never happens in real life. Violence is something that can walk up and clock you while you walk down the street. And if you accept it on that level, then you're on to something. But if you sit and watch cute little skits about violence, you're not learning anything. Well, this gets heavily into American culture, and we're addicted to entertainment. And so as long as Uh we're entertained, we're fine. That's kind of the American mindset. It also gets into the history of PE because I know through those studies that there was a noble purpose to our physical fitness, and it was actually thought of as it was your duty to be strong and, and mm-hmm. to be physically fit. And this goes back to ancient Greece. Well, again, we don't have that kind of foundation. We don't have anything to pull us together. What is 
what is his what does history say about something that pulls a nation together? It's it's basically world war. And mm-hmm. we we can this would be topic of another show. We can argue that's the benefit. This is the this is the yin yang part that we don't like to think about sometimes. That's mm-hmm. the benefit of having a war. It pulls you together because you can't win a war independently. Mm-hmm. You have to function as a group. That's mm-hmm. a topic of another show. Um so as we got into the riots and the protests or whatever you want to call them this summer and people were ranting and raving about civil war and even advocating that we should do civil war, I started thinking about, well, that's not a really an area that I know a lot about. I don't know a lot mm-hmm. about the civil war. I've I've read a lot about World War II um, because it has so much to do with the, the best of physical education. But I, So I got into a book, and again, I—, I I like reading these books that it ha- they tell a very authentic story by a historian that's very well researched, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like the non-romantic version. There's a book by—it's uh, called Living Hell, and it, again, this is a, a more recent book. It was published in 2014. He's a Regents Professor of History at Northern Kentucky University named Michael C.C. C. Adams, and he mm-hmm. talked about, again, the ballistics uh, part of— the Civil War and the brutality of it, I had no idea it was so bad. I literally was woefully ignorant this spring about the Civil War and what it what really went down. It mm-hmm. it it makes everything else pale in comparison. Oh yeah. It was absolutely brutal. And on the racism <laughs> part of it, the 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 North were racist as hell too. I mean, <laughs> not to get into make the show about racism, but that like there was just a hell of a lot of racism um, going yeah. down in those days. So, but it, the brutality of it. I mean, one of the things that was different was the ballistics science. So they didn't use high velocity rounds and rifles like we do today. It was a lower velocity uh, um, muzzle loaded type firearm with a mm-hmm. with a ball, and because of the the velocity being lower, um, the the ball would travel within the body. It didn't. It didn't just necessarily go through the body like the rounds today. And so, uh, the one of the things I learned is that they they taught the soldiers not to go in a forward vector, which is to lean forward as they charged in, because what would happen is the round would go in uh, towards their upper shoulders and it would travel all through their body ricocheting and just basically just decimate them on the battlefield. There was just awful um basically you know tendons and muscle and bone fragments just splattered all over the trees and these these people would be laying there inviscerated which is when your your abdominal organs are basically falling out of your body. Um and a lot of times they wouldn't be dead right away, and there was there was no EMT, emergency medical, paramedic stuff in those days. And they would just lay there basically suffering through the night. Um, and then the hogs would come in from the farms, and they would start eating the people before they even died. I mean, there's, I'm telling them this is just awful. So when we talk, we start <laughs> talking smack about civil war, you need to know what what happened past mm-hmm. tense, and what can happen again. And again, history repeats, so be careful. Be careful what you ask for, and be mm-hmm. careful what you flippantly talk about in a romantic sense, because after learning this, 
I, I really mm-hmm. changed my position, uh, well, and I took a big step back. They said at least 2% of Americans alive uh, in 1860 died in uniform, and that would translate into uh, more than 6 million people today if we had a civil war today and we had the same percentage of people that died in battle. And uh-huh. that's pretty harsh to get your head around. I can remember mm-hmm. when I lived in Atlanta, we were downtown Atlanta at a park near Inman Park. It might have even been the Inman Park area, if I remember right. And my twins were little then. They were playing in the playgrounds, and there was a Civil War sign, and I went over there to read it while they were playing. And I re- I realized that 6,000 men had died there in, in one afternoon. And I thought, there were rivers of blood where I'm standing. 6,000 people died in one battle in one day right here. Um, it's pretty sobering, and it's mm-hmm. just awful and brutal. Um, yeah, well, there's, some, there's a great book that you will probably really enjoy. It's called The History of Warfare. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure who wrote it, but it's an excellent book because it talks about the uh, not only the different ways in which people have fought wars, but also the logistics of war. Mm-hmm. Like you won't find chariots being used in a mountainous terrain because they're obviously right. logistically right. um, incorrect. But it's a good, it's a really good book. Mm-hmm. And just really briefly on the, I'm, cause I know we've talked to, you've mentioned Antifa quite a lot. And I told you about that author, Chris Hedges, who mm-hmm. wrote the, a book called The Death of the Liberal Class. Yeah. Um, he would be considered pretty left of center by most people who listen to him and read his material. Yeah. But um, he absolutely hates Antifa. Really? Because he was a war correspondent. Uh huh. He saw what wars do. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, he watched people die like you're talking about. He, right. You know, he watched entire populations be decimated by the, the wars and just the absolute brutality of it. Yeah. And uh, he is very anti-war and anti-violence. Yeah. Well, when, and it, when you see it at that, would, up, up that close, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's, um, there are people on my side of the fence, which for those of you who haven't figured it out yet, I'm on the left side of the fence and Ron's on the right side of the fence. But we can see over the fence. But we also fence hop sometimes, so it depends on the topic, you know. We do, yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's uh, there, there, there's it's. I, I think it would be a mistake to believe that. Um, and no, I'm not saying that you do, but there are people that do. That if someone leans to the left, they automatically support things like Antifa, and they support things like violence during protest, and they don't. They just don't. Right. No, that's a, that's an don't. excellent point, and I, I, a, a point well taken, and I don't, I wouldn't go down that road with people, but I mean, I'm glad you mentioned it, because it, it just like there's a lot of right-wing conservative people that aren't white supremacist, you know, <laughs> and, and they, de- they just deplore the whole, like, you know, Nazi thing. So, you know, we, we can just make these generalizations that are extremely inaccurate. Um mm-hmm. Uh, the book Living Hell talks about in 67, there were, there were more battles that killed 6,000 people in one day. It wasn't just that one in Atlanta, and it cites Franklin, Tennessee. The Confederates lost more troops than U.S. forces did in 19 hours on D-Day in 1940, 
four. In five hours, they lost more than D-Day. It did in 19 hours. At Cold Harbor, 7,000 Yankees fell in 20 minutes. So 7,000 people shot down in 20 minutes. And that's civil war in America. It wasn't mm-hmm. that long ago in terms of historical timelines. Um, but they the, they talked about the mini ball. The, the, the technical term for that roaming ball inside the body, uh, uh-huh. they, they, they talked about it as a roaming characteristic. So the ball would roam through the body because of mm-hmm. the low velocity. It didn't have the power to punch mm-hmm. right through and go out the backside. It would just kind of ricochet around, which made a, long, uh, a, a longer, more miserable death than just getting taken out immediately. And he cites here on page 72, pieces of clothing and strings of flesh hang on the limbs of the trees around them. And this is just, you know, brutal. Another thing that came out of this was that, you know, these armies were traveling cities, and they had no, they had no um, sanitary provisions. There were no blue rooms and portable outhouses. So the, the men were literally sleeping in, in mud and feces and urine like, right outside their tent, and, you know, they didn't move every day. You know, they would pull in, and sometimes they'd be there for a while. And so there was this stench that followed the armies, apparently. And and because of the amount of people that died, they it was cited that it took several seasons, as, as in years, for the smell to go away. There was just so much flesh and death and destruction that wasn't uh, buried properly and processed. Um, Anyway, um, the Civil War introduced America to wholesale killing. This is such a drag, man. I mean, the reason I research war a lot is because, you know, I want to do my part to avoid it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it also has a lot to do with the physical fitness training methods that I like to learn about. But isn't it a drag that we spend so much energy, time, and money, and technology just to kill other people. It just doesn't make sense to me, you know, why it has to be that way. Um, on page 92, he talks about a heap of amputated feet, legs, arms, and hands, uh, and a full load for a one-horse cart. So they, they would literally do amputations. If, if they were skilled, they would do it in like two minutes or less. And so they were just cutting stuff off left and right. Of course, the the medical practices at the time sometimes were worse than the actual battle wounds, and the soldiers would actually cry out and beg for someone to shoot them in the head and just end it because they didn't want to deal with the the, the medical issues. And then he goes on, on page 92, you could see the hogs belonging to the farm eating arms and other portions of the body um, because, again, the system got overwhelmed. There was no way to process that amount of death. So when people talk about, let's just go to Civil War, you might want to rethink that. Um, Yeah. On page uh, 115, in other words, at least 18,000 men in a highly distracted mental state loaded and overloaded their weapons, oblivious of never having fired them. And this is the section of the book where they talk about they literally lost their minds. There was so much death and so much destruction and just it was so awful that the human mind of the soldier could not cope any longer, and they literally lost it. They were out there fighting, and they couldn't even remember what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was—this uh, is interesting from a medical standpoint. 
men hyperventilated, and for many, the strain progressed to an irregular cardiac condition known as soldier's heart. The thousands affected experienced fits of fluttering cardiac action and cardiac irritability and pulse rate fluctuations as high as 120 to 150. Severe shortness of breath, coughing up of blood. These are the types of things as we, there's so many people so traumatized in 2020 by, you know, losing their whole lives and they're, they're out of work and their businesses are shut down. They can't take care of their families. I'm concerned about these types of things happening, um, and well, they're already happening to an extent, but next, more so next year. My mother mm-hmm. texted me. My mom, driving down the road, goes over the overpass, and there was a teenage boy trying to jump off, and a bunch of men trying to talk him out of it or grab him from jumping off mm-hmm. in the freeway. This happened today in California. So, um, you know, when, when bad goes to worse, that, that becomes uh, more and more common. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's go ahead. Uh, there's a, a a book that our mutual friend Philippe Hill recommended. It was called the um, the Gift of Fear. I've read it. I have it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And in that book, he talks about um, <clears throat> inherent violence. Mm-hmm. And there's one passage I can't. Uh, remembered exactly, but he's basically asking a series of questions to this person about situations that may result in violence. Mm -hmm. And in almost every question, the person says, well, yeah, that would be, you know, I would just try to roll that off. And they ask one question in the same tone of voice, as they said, I would just roll that off. They say, oh, in that case, I would just kill them. Hmm. So there's a point at which we just resort to violence. And that kind of goes back to the start of the show where there's a little bit of Nazi in all of us. And I'm not, you know, that's not me talking. This is this is people that live through the Holocaust, and they're mm-hmm. saying, you have no idea what depth the human person can go to until you see what we saw. And so don't think that it can't happen again. I, you know, one of the things that they, at least from my position, that the Jewish survivors have tried to do and dedicated their whole lives to doing, many of them, is is— telling the story and mm-hmm. letting people know what actually happened so it doesn't get covered up, as unpleasant as it is. Um, have you been to the Holocaust Museum? I have, yeah. I oh, have okay. been. Yeah, I have been. One of the things that came up, um, I thought, and this this is very interesting in terms of the trauma people are going through today, uh, They he quoted an intragonologist named uh, Robert Sapolsky, uh, provided the scientific context, under stress, all animals secrete hormones. Of course, we know that. This helps in weathering a crisis, but ultimately leads to a kind of emotional suicide when the immune system becomes degraded. So there's a, there's a cost-to-benefit ratio here. You know, we have these hormones that can allow us to survive a critical, acute situation, which is great, because that enables us to continue. But if we're if we're existing in a constant trauma state, that really breaks us down. So he goes on to say, the deterioration appears in physical symptoms like blood thickening and clots resulting in heart attack and stroke, along with steady loss of brain function, possibly ending in dementia. And this is from being under stress so much. So Uh we haven't even begun 
to see the problems of 2020 in December of 2020. When Churchill said things are going to get bad before they get worse, this is the kind of stuff he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And we need to get off our TikTok entertainment bullshit and get our heads around this um, and start really working together as a group of people with some type of common goal beyond, you know, getting a, a, a free pizza on the government card. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's well, gotten was, um, serious here. I have been, um, I guess I'm terming it uh, for lack of a better way. Um, I'm going undercover. Mm. And I'm uh, actively searching out people who disagree with me. Mm-hmm. And um, been looking for an entry point. I've done this twice since I've been here in Paso Robles. Mm-hmm. And once I find an entry point, it turns out that, as it does with you and I, that we have a lot more in common than we do um, not in common. I, I, and that I find that, exi- that, yeah, I find that to be generally true. If you just sit and talk to somebody for a while, that, that usually is the case. Right. And we actually, I mean, common enemy. Um, and everybody that I've talked to on either side of the fence has agreed that this is a common enemy. And the question I will usually pose is, do you think people in positions of power care about you? And universally, the answer is no. I would say no. Absolutely. Right. Without, so, without hesitation. Exactly. And that's my point of entry. That's where the the liberal fucking pussy walks into the door of the gun store and becomes best friends with the guy behind the counter. Yeah. Um, because we do have that in common. We do have a common enemy, and the common enemy is people that have nothing but money and power on their mind and really don't care who they have to step on or walk over to get at it. Well, I guess we can look at this show as, as laying some things out that can bring people together by knowing history and knowing mm-hmm. what happened and knowing it, that it did happen, it can happen again, and maybe we can get our heads around that and circle the wagons. Because mm-hmm. whether you're on the left side of the fence or the center or on the right, I really don't think we want to lay out on the field with the hogs eating us. You know, I mean, that that's not that that would happen today, mm-hmm. unless you're next to a hog farm. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, do we really want to go down this road? I our country desperately needs some changes um, and some improvements, and I'm willing to do my part to make that happen, as I have for decades. But mm-hmm. I'm not willing to burn it all down to get there. Um, I don't think it's time for that. And that's just my opinion. Some people disagree with that. One of the things that came out of the Civil War was also food riots. Uh-huh. In, in the North, in the North now, Angry citizens formed riots in urban areas like Detroit, Chicago, and New York. In the South, too, cities became flashpoints where soldiers' dependents collectively expressed their grievances, particularly in bread riots. And so there was a saying then, it was called bread or blood. And so Mm -hmm. this is one of the things that—because this war went on for years. It wasn't like they had a little skirmish. I think it was, uh, what, six years? It was -hmm. was a long-ass deal, you know? (laughs) Tens of thousands of people were were mowed down, and you know, 
I don't think I really grasped the whole brother versus brother thing until 2020. Uh-huh. Because there were, I remember growing up hearing about the Civil War where family members turned on family members and they were shooting each other. And I've started to see that type of thing this year. I've had, mm-hmm. um, just in the last week, a um, couple people I know that have known people for decades as friends, like their friends won't even have anything to do with them because they're, they've got a different opinion about what's going on. So it's really divided people. Oh, yeah. Um, and then and then next thing you know, you got a gun in your hand and you're shooting somebody that you've known since high school and 30, 40 years of friendship goes flying out the window. So maybe I think what you're doing, Michael, is really powerful. Like, you know, you're opposite sides of fence, if you will, but you just, what's, what's the entry point to get people to start talking? And, and then when they talk mm-hmm. for a while, they'll realize, well, you know, maybe we're not so far apart. Where, where it can't happen is when people are just screaming a three-word you know, vocabulary. And I right. see a lot of this in the media reports. Like, if somebody's just saying F you in my face two inches in front of my nose, it's not going to go well. I mean, there's no, mm-hmm. there's, no way to, there's no way to come up with a compromise at that point. You right, know, there is no we have to, point. We have to be somewhat rational in our arguing here. Um, anyway, the, the, as, as callous as it might sound, the only entry point in a situation like that is center of mass. Yeah, yeah. On on this division, on page 173, the bitter personal hatreds between contending parties and border badlands where division thrive produce special cruelties, such as the burning alive of enemy civilians, thrown into flaming buildings, as well as random torturing and killings, accompanied by taking grisly trophies, including ears, genitals, and scalps. So this is something else that came out of this. They were taking battle trophies, which they still do today. And they were literally like cutting the penis off somebody and then, you know, taking it home or an ear or nose or whatever. I mean, this is how, when bad goes to worse, this is the kind of stuff that happens. And I personally don't want to see that happen in my country, nor do I feel like doing it to somebody else. Um, Soldiers on both sides considered women of slave cabins especially fair game. So now we get into the rape part of uh, violence. African-American women bore a large brunt of male lust frequently diverting rapist attention away from potential targets such as white women. That's on page 175. So that's that's a little bit about uh, the American Civil War. On, on the related to the Civil War, um, there, I, I'm going to quote a book now. It's called Before the Mayflower, A History of the Negro in America, 1619 to 1964 by Lerone Bennett Jr. Lerone Bennett Jr. was somebody I learned about because of studying Malcolm X, he was very influential. And one thing I I like about reading Malcolm X and Lee Rowan Bennett is I don't feel, in my opinion, they take a left position or a right position. They're just factual about what they're reporting. Mm-hmm. And they oftentimes cite historical cases. Um, and so it's very educational to read them, even though I don't always agree with their position. In my opinion, it's very rational. And one of the things I learned from this book, um, there was a very, uh, and again, on their theme of bad goes to worse, there's a very um, famous lynching of a a black woman named Mary Turner in 1918. And it was one of the most barbaric acts ever committed in a civilized country. And this is on page uh, 294. Um, Though pregnant, the Negro woman was lynched in Valdosta, Georgia, 
She was hanged to a tree, doused with gasoline and motor oil, and burned. As she dangled from the rope, a man stepped forward with a pocket knife, ripped open her abdomen in a crude cesarean operation. Out tumbled a prematurely born child, wrote Walter White. Two feeble cries it gave and received for answer the heel of a stalwart man as life was ground out of the tiny form. So, you know, when you think about how bad can it get, that's how bad it can get. And do we need to change the way people think that that facilitates that type of action? Absolutely. And here's here's the thing too, man. Like you can't you can't legislate and and force people to behave a certain way unless you just completely take over the whole country and we become this communist lockdown state, which some people are arguing that's the way we're headed. We did the Civil War, tens of thousands of people died, and yet people still haven't changed in some ways. So I think we need a different approach. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we can force people to behave a certain way. Like what, what is the problem with, with allowing people to better themselves and, and have an equal chance, provided they're willing to do the work and kick some serious ass? In terms mm-hmm. of you know getting their education or learning their skill or whatever, interestingly, and this is kind of off the topic, what what uh, one of the big uh, race riot situations was all about. I think this was the Red Summer of nineteen nineteen, if I remember correctly. They were protesting or rioting for two things. One is they wanted access to skilled work. Two is they wanted quality in education. They wanted an equal chance to learn. They uh-huh. weren't asking for money. They wanted work, and they wanted education. That's what they were pissed about, and I think that is worth fighting for. A couple of newer books. Um, this is a book that was referenced by Eric Hoffer. It's called Journey into the Whirlwind by Eugenia uh, Ginsburg, and she's Russian, and she wrote this book about um, when the Stalin camps took over what what happened? I just started reading the book, but it if Hoffer referenced the book is important that that is worth me looking into it. And what she cited in in the beginning of the book is she came up against a reversal of logic and common sense. And this is what this is how it started. Like I just saw this happen with my own eyes. No, it didn't. You know, it's like a denial that it happened. It's the gaslight thing. It's like, well, this actually happened. It's like, no, it didn't. And, mm-hmm. and and they used science. They stood behind the science. It was about the science, and the common sense flew out the window, and the rationality flew out the window. So when you start reading things like this and you see what's happening today, it's very disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, another book that I'm going to uh, tag onto the show here is How to Lose a Country. Now, this was just written last year, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, and this was written by a Turkish lady named Isi uh, Temel Curran. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if that's how you pronounce her name, but this is a she's a journalist in Turkey. She wrote a whole book on the whole thing, and, and I was very ignorant of what happened in Turkey. Like, we, we didn't really get a, a really authentic um, story here, I think, of what was going on. But she lays mm-hmm. out—now, I thought the book was really slanted towards blaming the, it, the right wing across the globe for these problems— mm-hmm. But knowing the psychology of mass movements, fanatics are fanatics. So I just read this, and like it doesn't matter if it's far left or far right. This is the kind of stuff that's going to go down. Mm-hmm. 
So if you're interested in what's happening currently or just happened, um, that is an excellent read too. And two more books I'll cite. I won't go into them today in detail, but this gives me a context for the show, Michael. One of them is uh, Hitler Speaks by Hermann Rauschning. And he was one of Hitler's um, close allies in the 30s, and he was having all kinds of personal conversations with Hitler. And so he split before, you know, it was too late, and he wrote this book. It was published in 1939. I've got an original copy, and basically it's about the inner thoughts of Adolf Hitler and what he really wanted to do and what he often did do. Um, Mm -hmm. So that gives me a lot of context for the show. And another book that probably no one has heard of is called Education for Death, The Making of the Nazi. And this was Mm -hmm. another book that was written right after it happened. It was published in 1941, and it was written by Gregor Ziemer. And he was in charge of an American school in Berlin, and he got access and, and got the trust of the Nazi uh, regime, and he was able to get in and actually see the sterilization clinics um, and get access to the the SS schools and the Hitler Youth and all these things. And they just, you know, they for, for whatever, it was kind of bizarre, and even he was surprised by it. They let him access all this stuff over a period of time. And then he fled at the last minute, and as soon as he got back to America, he wrote this book. This book is about exactly how they did their education system from in vitro, I mean not in vitro, but from the embryo state, basically before the baby was even born, with the parents, all the way through the SS, Hitler Youth, and all that. It's absolutely fascinating, but extremely disturbing. It's the educational system. Another book you might find as disturbing was, I believe it was Noam Chomsky wrote a book called Manufacturing Consent. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how um, how things are fed to us, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And this, I'm sure your brother and other people, once again, this is where the right and the left meet. That uh, The entire thing is about the media's misrepresentation of certain events and how they will give you know X amount of footage to uh, one event and give a considerably less amount of footage to another event in order to magnify the importance of the event that they the, seem to the, think the, is. the propaganda piece. Um, Pretty much. This brings us to a close, and I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. I'm, I'm reading a book now that I found in a, a used bookstore in Hollywood a few weeks ago, and it's, it, was, it was put out by the American government in 1943. And the title of the book is National Socialism, Basic Principles or Application by the Nazi Party's Foreign Organization and the Use of Germans Abroad for Nazi Aims. And they basically took all the information they found that was published and they could access, whether legally or illegally, and they had German interpreters that also knew the culture of Germany, and they translated all this and they, they put it into uh, basically a manual, and, and this is how Nazi Germany did what they did. And it's, it's really, really fascinating. And one, one of the things that I've learned from reading the book so far is that lying in Nazi Germany wasn't dishonorable. It actually had an honor code attached to it. And the bigger the lie, the better it worked because something was bound to stick. And so as I look around this year, there's been so much lying. It seems so obvious that some of this is absolute bullshit, whether it's a, on the left side or the right side, right? 
And mm-hmm. this is part of the playbook. This is part of history repeating. This has happened. There's a there's a precedent for this. And so one of the things I realize is like we just can't believe what we're told anymore, especially uh-huh. right now. Whether you're a mass person or not, or whether you believe in COVID or not, we really need to take a harder look at this and consider the sources, which is why I read so much in the historical side, and I triangulate things to simplify. I don't just read one thing. I, I read something, and I read their sources, and I, I go back and forth, and I try to I kind of come up with the, the, the dots that repeat, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was the, the, the outright lying in the media, the propaganda piece, the, the complete, like, I mean, I've got quotes of Hitler, like, we have no intention of invading anybody and doing harm. And, you know, it's like, uh-huh. it, it's absolute bullshit. So <laughs> it's like Newsom telling us we're not supposed to go out. And then the next week, he he's, he's in the French laundry with a $350 a plate meal. And this is the kind of stuff that happened in Nazi Germany. <clears throat> and it's happening as we speak, you know? Mm-hmm. So be careful. I'm just saying, whether you're left side center or right let's get our heads around what we have in common and try to rescue and salvage what's left before it's too late or you can take michael's position that it's too late already we might as well just do a couple more podcasts and <laughs> do a couple more podcasts and, and check out and think that we actually gave a damn and tried to do something about it and live a life of passionate intensity I, you know, I was thinking about the show as I was driving around today, and I, I, I feel like I've done, I've done, I've done as the best I can do with what I've got. I'm not uh-huh. the smartest person, but there are a lot of people not as smart or as intelligent or educated as me. But I think it's it's important to just do the best with what you've got, and mm-hmm. despite the fact that some people are far more knowledgeable and educated and smarter, I, I feel like I've worked hard and I've done. In some areas, like the maximum type stuff with what I had to work with, um, uh-huh. and I at at some point, like, what is your life for? If if you're not, and what what is the purpose for you being here? Is it is, is it just to buy stuff? And and if that is the, the universal inten- question, well, it, it is the universal question, and, and a lot of Americans would struggle to even have an answer at all, and maybe that therein lies the problem. If you can't answer the question or you can't even have a conversation about how to answer the question, how in the world can we expect to follow the unwritten laws? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, it, I would um, add my favorite new cause to the end of the show, and that is live passionately, fight ferociously, love unconditionally, and die with your boots on. Well, you know... We might, that might be the flag as the, the city goes up in flames, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Michael. I thanks for the show. It's 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 been the harshest show. I've I've been doing podcasts probably over ten years. I've never I've never tackled a topic like this. I mean this you know well, okay. talking about obesity is uh like a Disneyland cakewalk compared to the things that oh, we're yeah. talking about here, but these these are the deeper health issues, if you will. It's mm-hmm. an, if you're talking about health, because we're health and fitness people, you you've got to have 
you've got to have the safety and security of your people. That's paramount. Um, before we worried about, you know, what your, you know, your, <laughs> how many grams of protein you're eating a day. I mean, there, there are more important things to be discussing today, which is why we've delved into this type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I will mention this though, and this is the importance for what we do on the fitness side. Somebody that I trained, uh, recently, um, was training another, uh, young girl who wanted to be a runner and, and she nice girl wants to do it but was so physically illiterate and so completely out of condition that she she couldn't even like stand on one foot for a second um couldn't do any of the the fundamental drills and it's not the little girl's fault you know she's like 12 but she never had physical education and she never was taught the fundamentals of movement and so now you want to be a cross country runner it's like well you know this is part of the breakdown of our whole country and our whole system. And you can't mm-hmm. be great when you have that level of illiteracy. There's so many things we need to fix. And um, to get back on my PE soapbox a minute, I just want to underscore that. Because we'll, we will get back to that part of it. But I think mm-hmm. for this year, um, I don't know if I would use the word enjoy, but I, I think it's important that we've tackled the topics that we've uh, tackled. I do too, and I'm glad we're doing it. Most most people wouldn't be willing to talk to me about these issues, so um, I do respect you being open about it and and also disagreeing and and, and being okay to disagree. I think that's an important part of our message together as uh, mm-hmm. health educators, if we will. All right, Michael, yes. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Ron. Yeah. You've been listening to Lean Braze Radio Show app, theleanbraze.com. Until next time, keep moving well to think well, be strong to be useful, and I encourage you to make a difference. Don't give up. Stay the course. Make the world a better place.